As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey everyone, this is Adam from Team Overdrive, and welcome to episode 107 of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. I'm not joined by Jill today because she's out of the office, but I am joined by a very special guest, someone that I've never mentioned on the podcast before because I'm an idiot. My brother works at Overdrive too. Hello, hello, Jay. Hi, Adam. Thanks for never mentioning me on the podcast. I, that sounds about right. I may have mentioned that you existed, but not that you're here great so thanks to everybody for knowing that i exist <laughs> hey, jay. maybe maybe hey jay what do you what do you do here at overdrive i work with our collection development squad as i've been calling them lately we work with schools and libraries mm-hmm. to provide the best collection of books uh, that they could possibly get in digital formats anywhere and now would that be a hashtag squad <laughs> actually it would be a hashtag squad depending on which social media but of yeah. course, this is all predicated upon my existence, which we know is may or may not have. <laughs> well, no, you exist now, so that's good. And I've tweeted, I think I've tweeted pictures of, no, actually, I think I tweeted a picture of your daughter and I reading a book that uh-huh. you took. You took, I didn't give you photo credit. <laughs> well, yeah, that sounds about right, based on the way this conversation is going so yeah. far. Well, hey, you know what? I, no, what? Uh, so what are Go some... Go on, we're listening. <laughs> uh, I'm regretting bringing you on as opposed to doing this by myself. Listen, you're right to regret it. Yep. But now everybody knows that I'm the better one and they <sighs> probably should be listening to me this Well, time. you're the older one. That's certainly true. That is certainly true. Hey, Jay, what are some of the books you like reading with your daughter? All books. Uh, I'm unique, as you know from the picture that I took of you reading with her, that she <laughs> would rather listen to a story, either one of our read-alongs or um, on those uh, special occasions when she prefers that I read it to her versus the narrator. Uh, she'd rather listen to, to books and, and look at the pictures and, and read through and try to figure out what the words are herself than to actually watch TV. So a lot of the things we read are stuff that you would find on TV. She likes the Doc McStuffins yes, read-alongs. She, does. she likes the Frozen read-alongs. Um, anything that's a character that's recognizable. She enjoys, but she'll listen to anything. Um, she'll even listen to stuff that's nonfiction for little kids, and she's five, so it's kind of cool to talk about sharks. And But then again, uh, she loved the, uh, if you're thinking about bringing a piano to the beach, don't book, and if you're thinking about bringing an alligator to school book, uh, don't, and those, she loved those as well. I believe that was Eloise Parker, I think her name is. Nope. Parsley. Elise Parsley. Elise Parsley. Eloise is not her name. She's not a grandmother. I believe that she was formerly on this podcast, though. So yeah, everyone she was. listening is aware of her existence. Elise Parsley. So she's wonderful. <laughs> she's yeah, she is. She's I a get delight. It. And she actually offered to send some uh, supplemental materials, coloring sheets, and so forth 
to me. So anybody that's listening that has a small child and is reading children's books, reach out to the authors because they're pretty great people. Wow, you're really good at this. We should have brought you on much earlier, Jay. Well, uh, <laughs> yes, you should have. But that's what I feel like most things in my life people should just bring me into because I'm better. Wow, you know, at, that's true. At, at, no, I'm just yeah. Kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, not and, reading, and if, not reading. Apparently, because again, I get to do that rarely uh, because we listen to professional narrators. Well, listen, that is one of the reasons that I ha- you haven't come on yet is because we talk about books a lot, and and you're very busy, and you don't get to read as many books as I do. You have a child. I have two dogs, so it's much well, easier. It's almost equivalent, but probably not, not even actually, a little bit. Yeah, not even close. No. Um, hey, if if people who go to their Overdrive website, want to find some of those read-alongs, would like a great place to find them be on the kids and teens e-reading rooms that their libraries probably have? Oh, it, it would be at their kid. Well, mainly their kids e-reading sure, rooms. Sure, yes. So if you actually, a little handy handy tip and trick here is if you just go to the main site and at the very top of the page in the URL, whatever that main site is for your library, you just hit slash kids. Mm-hmm. It will take you right there. Or obviously you can click the uh, the kids button that's now right at the top of the page. But yeah, you can look there. There's usually curated collections that either the library put together or that our wonderful staff librarians here put together. So really, it's a great service. And uh, that's something that you and I, uh, as the listeners probably don't know, again, going back to my existence not being real, <laughs> uh, that we, we worked with the first ever kids room with a little... Not not so little, in fact. Uh, right. A library west of Seattle, Snow, uh, not Snow Isle, sorry, Kitsap Regional Library, mm-hmm. and uh, we worked with them on the first ever kids' room about four and a half years ago. It's crazy how much it's taken off since then. But you're saying you and I, I didn't really do very much. I was trying to give you credit, but you don't I, have to do that. I haven't well, given yeah, you credit. Okay, so let's just mix that last part. You <laughs> had nothing to do with it. But um, yeah. man, I'll tell you what, what a rapport these two have. It's almost like they've known each other their whole lives. Um, well, I haven't known you my whole life. No, I no. You you've been my 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 older brother for most of my life. Yeah, I think people know how the older that's younger the siblings. Joke I like to that's tell. how they how they work. Yeah. Yeah. People are familiar with math and. I bet they were like me. Chronology. Yeah, they probably like me talking over you. That's that's how. <laughs> that's what we do. Podcasts are always best when people talk over other people. I know that that and visual me. visual uh, jokes. Those are always the best too. Do so. you think people can actually envision us talking with our hands right now? Uh, if they are, they'd be wrong because we're not talking Correct. with our hands. You did just make a great reveal of the glasses. I, yeah. Removal of the I glasses took my glasses right off and I was going to talk with my hands and then to prove a point, I didn't talk with my hands. Yeah, it was very dramatic. You yeah. know you know what else they love that we do very often is uh, weather talk because we're regional and most people that listen to the podcast aren't from where we live. And also they hear it several days after the fact. So, for mm. example, today, tons of snow in Cleveland where most people aren't. By the time they hear us on this on Monday... Tomorrow, yesterday, which was Sunday, will have been very nice here. So that's just a weather update for everybody, too. That was very confusing. Thank you. But Monday, yeah, it's supposed to be, I think, 60 full degrees warmer in Cleveland than it will here in uh, also Cleveland yep, still. still Cleveland, yeah. You actually, you listen to a lot of audiobooks. Recently. I do. I'm listening currently to... Uh, at Neil himself, Neil Gaiman's um, view from the cheap seats, and he is fantastic. I love, you know, it's interesting to listen to a narrator that's not uh, necessarily an American English speaker because the little nuances of the way that they pronounce words, especially if you're going to read the the book in a company. Um, I did this with the Kite Runner because there were some words that I couldn't pr- uh, pronounce, mm-hmm. and once you listen to it for an hour, you can kind of get that feel, and you almost. It's, it's putting you more into the book itself. It's really, it's a neat uh, neat thing. And I have a 45-minute drive uh, every morning. Yeah, you so, do. 
audiobooks are kind of a lifesaver for me. And you know what was awesome yesterday is I saw somebody uh, else that works here that had gone out to her car and came back in, even though it was freezing, came back in and was like, oh my gosh, I got to get the Wi-Fi. I have to download my book. I totally forgot before she left. It was, it was awesome. Wow. Yeah, we should have brought you on earlier with all these great anecdotes and clever sales. You can tell you're in sales because you're way better at actually. So many of these intros, we don't ever really mention anything like, here's how you can get the book. We're just like, oh, by the way, there's a link in the page news stuff. Yeah. So good job by you. Yeah. Um, this actual episode is an interview that has nothing to do with children's books. It's the book American War by Omar El Akkad. If you listen to the podcast in the somewhat recent past, I've mentioned it a few times. It's uh, Omar's first book, but he has spent his entire uh, professional life basically covering uh, wars all around the world. He's covered stuff in Iraq and in Egypt, and he's covered things in the you know, all the Middle East and Guantanamo Bay and all sorts of different places. And he uses all these different stories and experiences to uh, tell a story about a second civil war in the United States about 100 years from now. So I talked to him way back in January when we were both in Atlanta, for the American Library Association winter meetings, and it was a great conversation. I'm really excited. His book is now available, which is why I waited until April to post this episode for you guys. But take a listen. I think you'll really, really enjoy it. He's a very smart man, and he has a really awesome worldview. If you want to get a hold of us, you can reach us at on Twitter, at ProBookNerds. If you want to email us, it's professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Um, Jason, is there anything you would like to add? Brother who definitely exists. Uh, yeah, I definitely want to just clarify one more time that I do, in fact, exist. <laughs> and then also just say, for the record, even if you're not used to reading these types of books, uh, I particularly found this one to be quite engaging and, and entertaining myself. So I wish there was an audio book, uh, but did not have that at my disposal before this particular day. So take a, take a read, even if it's not your typical cup of tea. I think you'll still enjoy it. Perfect. Hey, well, thank you so much for joining me for this intro, brother of mine. It's hey. been so wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hopefully I'll be back in again in what it's been over a year. So year and a half. maybe I'll see you in like 2019. <laughs> all right. Well, I hope you guys all enjoy this interview on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Adam from Team Overdrive, and today I'm joined by debut author Omar El Akkad, who grew up in the Middle East before moving to Canada. In a 10-year career as a reporter, he's covered stories from the war in Afghanistan to the military trials in Guantanamo Bay, the Arab Spring Revolutions, and Black Lives Matter movement in Ferguson, Missouri. He has received the National Newspaper Award for Investigative Journalism for his coverage of the Toronto 18 terrorism arrests, and his debut novel, American War, comes out April 14th. Omar, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So can you maybe just get us started by letting our listeners get a little introduction into American War? Sure. Uh, American War is the fictional story of the Second American Civil War, mm -hmm. which takes place about uh, 50 years from now, a date that seemingly uh, every day seems to be more and more optimistic. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it takes place around 2075. Um, Nominally fought over the prohibition of fossil fuels. Um, the federal government wants to ban fossil fuels because of their, of their effects on, on the climate. Um, several southern states, including the one we're currently in, Georgia, yeah. um, secede. 
and what follows is a, uh, a civil war, a second civil war. Uh, the story follows chiefly the life of a young girl named Surat Chestnut who grows up in southernmost Louisiana. Um, southernmost Louisiana in this story is uh, about 100 miles north of where southern Louisiana is right now <laughs> because yeah. the coasts have been eaten up by, by rising sea levels. Right. New York is gone, the eastern seaboard is gone, so on and so forth. Um, and it follows her life and the things that are done to her and the way she's changed uh, by the war. And so as you mentioned, the book is set in the future, though not as far away as we might think it, it's going to be. Uh, but the issues at the the main conflict feel very relevant, I guess I would say. It, it's someone, as someone who's spent so much time writing stories that involve society and how s- specific situations affect humanity, how much of this is based on a maybe a potential version of the future that you could see? I mean... A lot of the book is composed of blatant acts of theft on my part. Um, You know, there's a detention camp in the book called Sugarloaf. Uh, It's based from my experiences covering the military trials in Guantanamo Bay. Uh, I went there a few times. I got to be in that location. Um, Camp Patience, which is a a refugee camp in the story, is based on a similar camp in the Middle East. Um, So a lot of what I did was take the conflicts that I was... that I sort of intellectually marinated in during my lifetime, chiefly the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, the uh, war on terror uh, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and I recast them as elements of an American civil war. So I took these conflicts that the United States has either been involved in indirectly or from a great distance, and I recast them as, um, as something very, very direct and very near. Okay, I don't want to give anything away for readers who will discover this book, but the things that happen in Sugarloaf, are these things that you saw happen to people in these camps? I, some of the things that happen to these characters are so horrible, but I, I, I forced myself to, to try to imagine the fact that if you're writing this as a person with a journalistic background, I'm guessing you've seen, heard, are aware of very similar situations to what they're doing. So my experiences with, with Guantanamo Bay, I went there about eight times to cover the military trial of... Um, a young man, who Omar Khadr, who was the only Canadian in, in Guantanamo, which is why my newspaper is Canada's national paper, would send me down there to cover this. Of course. Um, some of the elements are taken verbatim from, from what I saw there. Yeah. Um, for instance, the, you know, at one point they took us to, to go see a place called Camp X-Ray. Mm-hmm. Camp X-Ray is the very first place where the first detainees showed up. Mm-hmm. And that's where those pictures, if you ever see those famous pictures of people in orange jumpsuits yeah. and they're kneeling and sort of almost kennel-looking right. type kick, that's where they first put them. And then after that, they moved them to other camps. But the lasting image, the sort of iconic image of what Guantanamo Bay is, yeah. is Camp X-Ray. They have tried to destroy that place over and over. But the courts won't let them because it might be used as evidence in trials. Right. So it might be used as if someone claims that they've been tortured. That might. So you have a living piece of physical evidence that looks like the sort of you know backwoods shacks that you would see in horror movies right. where the weeds are overgrowing everything and they won't. Uh, so, for example, in one of the detention rooms in the book, there's a sign that says, clean up after yourself. Yeah. That's a sign that exists in, a, in an unused cabin in Camp X-Ray. Um, everything we know about the sort of what they call enhanced interrogation, what every human being who's seen it calls torture, right. um, is taken from the, the sort of the after-the-fact reports of this happening. Yeah. You know, for a long time, we, by which I mean everyone in this part of the world, yes. decided not to look that sort of thing in the eye, and a lot of the book is about looking that sort of thing in the yeah. eye. And all of these things that happen to the main characters, it, it 
she stands out as very different before any of these horrible events happen, but I would call her incredibly self-confident. She seems comfortable in her own skin throughout most of the story. And of course, there's a, she struggles with a lot of difficult situations, but I don't know, I was reading it as seeing her as a very confident in her decisions, even if she struggled with them internally. I, to me, I thought of her, despite some of the decisions she makes throughout the entire story, I looked at her as a positive angle, as someone that you could look at, a character who's positive for a reader to take away and say, it's okay to be different. Is that something you had in mind while you were writing it, or am I just reading a little bit too much into the character? The only thing I really wanted, and I don't know if I succeeded or not, mm-hmm. is to not have a clean-cut character. Yeah. I didn't want uh, a, a genuinely good human being sure. throughout the story. I didn't want the person who does something symbolically bad at the end, but they still have a heart of gold. I wanted to show how how the things that war does can destroy a person, can mm-hmm. break a person, can take someone who's fundamentally good, which I think Surratt is at the beginning of the story, and, yeah. and change her. And I think that the central tragedy of the, of the book, as far as I'm concerned, is the sense that here you have this very sort of defiant, courageous, curious human being, mm-hmm. and all of these traits are taken, and they are warped into something very evil. Yeah. Um, and I, to me, that was the, the overarching arc of the book, mm-hmm. was how she changes. And that yeah, you, you kind of answered this question, but I just kind of want to confirm the psychological reaction that she has throughout the towards the end of the book. Are these similar reactions to things that you've seen people go through on everything you've covered throughout your time, kind of in, in real life? Yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of time. So I was hired as an intern in 2006 at at, um, at the National Newspaper in Canada, mm-hmm. and a couple of days after I was hired full time, we had the largest terrorism arrests in Canadian history. And so I spent the next year essentially covering this story. And you get to meet people who are, who are sort of invested in this world. You interview people who used to live in Afghanistan. I interviewed a guy whose father was uh, bin Laden's uh, CFO, essentially. Oh, wow. He was the CFO of Al-Qaeda, oh, and this God. was his kid. And you get to talking to these people, and you start to understand that it's not just some people are born this way. Yeah. You know, you... I think that, that bad can be born, but I think evil has to be made. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you would get people, you would get recruiters, yeah. professional terrorism recruiters, who would say things like, you know, they would come up to, to young Muslim kids and they would say, you know, here are some pictures of what's happening to Muslims in Chechnya, mm-hmm. or Sri Lanka, or Palestine, or wherever. And they would show them these gruesome images, and then they would say, you know, when you face your Lord on Judgment Day, how are you going to say that you, you know, what did you do? Right. To, and it's a process. It's a radicalization process that can be applied to anyone if the conditions are severe enough. You know, it's not something foreign. It's not something exotic. And a lot of the book is about that. A lot of the book is, you know, if you're subjected to this sort of injustice and over time someone takes advantage of it, you can become this kind of evil. And so while we're recording this, of course, your novel hasn't come out just yet, but it's already been placed on so many most anticipated lists from places like The Millions, Global Mail, CBC. Uh, I know you've been a writer your whole career, but as a debut author, kind of going through this emotional car wash, I guess I'll call it for the first time, <laughs> you know, doing interviews and book signings, what's this experience been like for you? It's been absolutely surreal. Um, this is the fourth book I've written, the first one to ever leave the hard drive. Mm-hmm. Um, the other three I finished, and then I didn't think they were good enough, so I sort of left them where they sure. were. This is the first one that I tried to, to get out there. I should say, in all fairness, 
virtually everyone involved in the making of this book is much smarter and much more qualified <laughs> at what they do than I am. Um, I'm very fortunate to have a publisher that believes in this book, which is, I don't know if it's a good book, but I think it's a dangerous one, and they never at any point said, hey, you need to pull back, yeah. or, you know, we can make it more marketable by doing this. I was very, very fortunate to have an editor like Sunny Mehta who understands the book mm -hmm. um, and is maybe the best in the world at what he does. Everything since then has just been incredibly surreal to, to move from 10 years of having to tell the truth mm -hmm. to being yeah. in a situation where, where my work of fiction is, is taking me into these situations. Um, I'm very grateful, and I'm sure I'll find some way to mess it up, but so far it's, <laughs> it's been going well. Well, you won't say it, but I will. The book is fantastic. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Um, We've had a, a number of debut authors on the podcast who have transitioned from non-writing professions to writing professions, but you have kind of gone from long-form journalism to writing, like you said, a, a fictional novel. So other than it being real versus something you can make up on your own, what, what was, uh, for you, what was the difference in writing what you were from a journalism, journalistic standpoint to writing a novel? I think there were a number of, of differences. I mean, you get situations where, when I first showed up at, at the Globe and Mail at my newspaper, um, I met an editor named Greg O'Neill who, who died recently. He was at the Globe and Mail for 40 years. And his big sort of spiel that he would give young reporters when they showed up is, um, you know, uh, reporters are gods, but editors are atheists. And so <laughs> that would begin the spiel of how he was going to cut your writing down right. because he only wanted the information. Um, and so you got, you got a sort of education of how not to get very flowery. I mean, you know, the book contains a lot of descriptive passages, mm -hmm. but I spent 10 years being, having that idea drilled into my head right. of get to the point, get to the point, get to the point. Um, it was very strange doing something that was sort of close to what I've wanted to do with yeah. my life. Um, some of my favorite writers started out working, you know, they'd work the night shift at a gas station. It would give them a chance to read. Right. They would do something that was completely unrelated to writing so that they would have time uh -huh. to write. Um, I had the opposite problem. I would spend eight, ten hours a day writing, and then at night I would have to get to writing. Right. <laughs> and that's the last thing you want to do. Um, and so the book was written almost entirely between the hours of midnight and 5 a.m. Uh -huh. over the course of a year. Um, and on one hand, it was, it was an amazing education to work on a newspaper. On the other hand, there were days when I just did not want to look at a computer screen yeah. or a keyboard. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the education I got. So do you get by on a lot of caffeine, or do you just not need a lot of sleep as a human being? I am virtually worthless during the daylight hours. <laughs> I mean, I'm making a, an exception for this interview, I and I'm trying it. to stay on my game. Sure. But I, I barely function before the sun goes oh, down. Oh, that's so, so. funny. Um, okay, so speaking of your journalistic background and, and writing long, long-form articles, what are your thoughts on the state of journalism today? Because there's so much with all the fake news issues going on, and then people wanting short little snippets when it's you know 140 characters on Twitter, and people just reading a headline and, and getting getting what they think they need to from the story. So just what are your thoughts on journalism today? So and I know that and I know that that's a broad question <laughs> and I apologize. I, I'll try and so to give it, tell you a little story. I, I, I used to um, I used to work with a colleague who did analytics. So newspapers, all media outlets really really into analytics. Mm -hmm. They want to find out what people read, how long they read for, that sort of thing. And she had an interesting set of statistics. At one point, the newspaper did a survey of what readers want to hear about. And the survey was non-anonymous. People would give us their names. And, their and everyone said, I want more politics. I want more investigative journalism. I want long form. I want the important stuff. 
And then we had an anonymous survey just by clicks right. of what people were actually reading. Uh, celebrity divorces, um, anything with a sex scandal, and plane crashes. Um, so sort of, you know, fear and voyeurism. Yeah. Um, I don't think that newspapers have been doing a bad job. I think that life has been doing a very bad job, yes. and we chase our society. Um, it's going to be a very difficult four years, um, for uh -huh. hopefully four years, yeah. of this, especially in America, but in the West generally, because you have a situation where you have some of the best investigative journalism in the world happening right now, and the results are virtually nothing. Right. You have a situation where people believe something, and that's it. That's yeah. the end of the road. Yeah. Um, that's a very difficult thing to fight against, and I have no solutions for it. I have, I have no idea what newspapers or media outlets could be doing differently to fulfill their mission of bettering society without going bankrupt because they're not running those celebrity stories. Right. And I don't know the answer. You make such a great such a great point because you'll see these fantastic stories in you know, like the Washington Post and people will say, what a tragedy, or that's so upsetting, and and then two days later they they don't care. It doesn't matter that that particular journalist spent seven months covering it. People just don't tend to care. And it's... I mean, You've seen the results in the United States today, and it kind of—it's frustrating. I, I can't imagine, be, as a journalist, how this entire process has been for you. So, I, perhaps this was a good time for you to focus on writing a book. Well, I mean, you get into a strange situation where, by definition, news is what's new, right. what's unusual. And so, you know, a while back there was a story about how there were no—I um, think it was no violent assaults in New York one day, mm -hmm. which was unusual because usually there's some. Right. And so, when the very bizarre becomes the usual. It, it limits the newspaper's ability to have any impact. Yeah. If every day, you know, the people who are in charge of running your country are saying something that's factually untrue, it becomes very difficult to get people to continually care about that. You know, the place where I grew up in the world, in the Middle East, you have a problem of fatigue. You know, people will come out and protest, and people will say, we're not... But you can only do that for so long before right. you get into a situation where you're just exhausted. Yeah. And I worry that that's going to be something that happens in the next few years. Yeah. And so, and getting back to American War, and I apologize for kind of jumping around a little bit here, but um, you already mentioned that you spent most evenings doing the writing for that. But did you have a, an outline in mind when you would write it? Like, did you, would you sit down each night and say, all right, 1,500 words tonight, and here's the part of the story I want to cover? Or was it more that the story was kind of coming to you as you were writing? I had, um, and this is true for the for the project I'm working on right now, and most of the projects that I that I uh, try, I will have certain scenes sort of sprinkled different places chronologically in the book that sure. will be in my head as I start the process. So I'll say, you know, once I get to this point, I have a scene in mind that I really want to get down. Right. And then a lot of it is just the connective tissue between those. Um, I tend to write chronologically. I never do word counts because it would just be too depressing. Yeah. <laughs> um, there, are, there were days with negative word counts right. for sure where you just go delete everything that was written the day before. Um, I did keep, for a while, just to keep myself disciplined, I would keep uh, a log of how much time I was Sure. And so you would get, so on some weekends you would get 12 hours, and then there was a day when I was looking over the, the, the worksheet recently, and there was a day where I spent three and a half minutes. <laughs> I don't know what I did that uh -huh. day, but it clearly it was pivotal. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I, you know what though? I know how you feel. I'm a I'm a distance runner, and if it's really cold outside, sometimes I'll hop on the treadmill. And there'll be days when it's like oh, I can hour and a half knock it out, and then there's other days when I look down and be like three minutes, huh? That's I'm I'm done done today. I'm gonna sit down, so I can appreciate that. Um, 
because we're a book and library company, I always like asking, are there any authors out there, either whether you're, you're growing up or authors that you read these days that inspire you or anything that maybe you see other stories in the writing that you do? So when I, when I, my first experience of, of reading, I grew up in a, in a country, I grew up in Qatar in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. um, we had very limited access to books, especially fiction. Right. Um, and in fact, areas of, some areas of nonfiction were completely off limits. There was never a book about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that I could get my hands on that sure. just never made it past the censor. Um, certain books were censored. Uh, in fact, all media was censored. I still have my copy of, of Nirvana's Nevermind with the baby blacked out oh on the cover, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I remember distinctly my first sort of adult reading experience being uh, sneaking into my school library and taking out the Stephen King books, which had the little red sticker on them, which meant only for upper year students. Okay. Um, I didn't know anything about Stephen King, uh -huh. but I knew I had to get the red sticker books. Yeah. That was the... <laughs> that was the um, most of my... Most of the authors I love... Um, are Americans. I, I'm in love with Faulkner. I think Toni Morrison is is the most necessary and beautiful writer on on earth today. Um, I love Baldwin. Um, uh, Pearl S. Buck is, uh, wrote one of the best pure stories I've ever read in, in the Good Earth. Um, I've read from the, from the Middle East. Um, we have our heroes, and there. You know, if you're born in Egypt like I was, you can't not read Nagib Mahfouz even before he won his Nobel Prize. Yeah. You know, you have to get that. My Arabic is terrible, so I read the translations. Sure. Um, but but my father used to sneak into the cafes in Egypt in the old alleyways where he would hold court. You know, really? when my dad was a kid, and um, he would hold court with all the poets and all of the sort of cultural luminaries of the day, and they would talk. They would talk shop. Um, there were certain books that I was reading when I was writing American War that I didn't think would be a huge influence and ended up being. Um, chief among them is a book called Let Us Now Praise Famous Men by A.G., who um, essentially what happened was uh, A.G. Was, was tasked with going, by a magazine, he was, he was tasked with going to the South and writing about sharecroppers. And it was for a magazine story. And he came back with roughly 500 pages. <laughs> And they said, go away, this is insane, you spent 20 pages describing a drawer, we can't do this. Right. And so he ended up publishing his book, um, also tremendous photography in that book. Mm -hmm. But it, um, the first draft is of American War was full of detailed descriptions precisely because I was reading um, that book. <laughs> Um, so there are things like that. Uh -huh. But I, I try my best to uh, make the next book, when I'm reading, make the next book nothing like the last one. Um, I, like I, that. I don't read genres so much. I like That's a really good idea. I, I'm fortunate because, as we were talking before we started recording, I get sent books from publishers all the time, and it's whatever they want to promote. So I same thing, I don't, I rarely read like two science fiction books or two, you know, non-fiction, you know, non historic, anything. It's, I get to kind of bounce around. I really like that idea as well. Um, all right, we have nine rapid fire questions that we do. I say rapid fire, they're never rapid fire answers and that's probably through the host's fault. Uh, we call them the nerd nine because we like alliteration. Uh, so the first one is, what's the last book you finished? The last book I finished was uh, Mary Beard's upcoming biography of Ernest Hemingway. It's 700 pages. It's very sorry. These are supposed to be rapid fire. No, questions. no, no. Well, you can no. You can just go. Go for um, it. If I, I'm not a huge fan of Ernest Hemingway, but I read all 700 pages. It is surgical. Um, she gets everything in there. So a, a very good book. And one more. Sorry, I have to. Sure. I have to plug this. Um, it's called Proxies. It's by Brian Blanchfield. Blanchfield. It's. Um, 
a set of micro essays where he would sit down at the computer and he would not allow himself to research what he was writing at all. He couldn't look on the internet. Oh, that's or, amazing. So you get these micro essays, and then at the end is 20 pages of corrections. Oh of my everything. god! It's um, it's beautiful. It's very very erudite, but also at times heartbreaking. Highly recommended. I am going to read that. Wow. Also, I find it hilarious that there is a Ernest Hemingway biography that's 700 pages. I'm just imagining 700 pages of very short sentences that he would write himself, which I'm sure is not what it was. Um, what's your favorite place to read? My favorite place to read is we recently bought a house in the woods just south of Portland. We took one room and turned it into a library. Um, we have no library shelves, so the books are just everywhere. <laughs> it looks like the makings of a hoarder's house, um, but I love it, and I tend to spend the last hours of the day, midnight yeah. to two or so, reading there. Outstanding. Uh, do you have a guilty pleasure? Um, the only other thing that I'm halfway competent at other than writing is rock climbing so everywhere I go I will check out the local library or the local bookshops uh, and the the local climbing gyms and I am not at all competent at anything else so that's basically my that's life right awesome. there. Uh, do you have one place that you'd like to travel that you have not yet been to? Uh, I'm, I'm dying to go to Vienna. Um, I hmm. I really wanted to go to an island named Socotra, which is off the coast of, I want to say, Yemen. It's a UN heritage site. It's very difficult to get to, and it looks like an alien planet. Yeah. Virtually every piece of flora and fauna in that, pla in that island looks like nothing else on Earth. And I'm dying to go there, and there's wars everywhere, and uh, all of my people are busy killing each other, and I'm not happy about it, but it keeps me from going there. Uh, hopefully that'll change one day. That's an understandable reason to not travel somewhere just yet. Uh, do you have a favorite holiday? My favorite holiday. Um, this isn't so much a holiday, but where I come from, uh, Ramadan, which is uh, a month in the Muslim calendar, you, you fast during the day and you, you basically just eat all night and yeah. everybody gains weight when they're not supposed to. But um, in, when living in the West, it's terrible because nobody else is fasting. I'm the only idiot who's not eating. And, you know, it's, but when you're back in the old country, that entire month feels like a holiday because yeah. everybody is miserable during the day so nobody's like nobody expects much of right. you and then at night it's just a party till sunrise so that's that's, that's what was my favorite experience um, do you do you have a favorite movie my favorite movie is Jesus's son which is based on a book by Dennis Johnson um, nobody I've ever met has a seen that movie yeah. let alone thinks of it as their favorite for some reason I love that film uh, are you a cat person or a dog person I'm a cat person, but I recently I became allergic. I'm not uh -huh. sure, but but um, I can't I can't have cats anymore, uh -huh. which is very depressing. You and my wife we get along. She is deathly allergic of cats. Uh, do you have a favorite food? Oh man, my favorite food. Um, I'm a big fan of an Egyptian street food called koshari, which is all the carbs in the world just on one plate. <laughs> it's rice and macaroni and lentils and fried onions and this this weird tomato hot sauce. Um, you can't get it. There's a certain level of quality at a restaurant after which it's pointless getting this food. You can only get it at a street stall right. where afterwards you'll get the runs and yeah. it'll be awful, but you have to get it at like the, the diviest place you can. <laughs> and then the la that's so good. And then the last one, uh, if you could have dinner with one person alive or dead, who would you choose? Um, maybe it's just because I've had politics on my mind a lot. Um, but I, I would love to sit down with a, a newly unencumbered Barack Obama and just find out what it's like 
um, to be the first black president of the United States because I strongly suspect that there are all kinds of things that man knows about what it's like yeah. um, that he has never been allowed to say in public. Um, if I was able to get that impression of what it was like, I think I would want to do that. I know that's a sort of obvious answer, but but sure. that's what's been on my mind for the last little while. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's fantastic. And then the last question I just I have for you is, what do you hope readers take away from reading American War? You know, I... I subscribe to that view that, that writers like Borges said that once it's out of your hands, it's out of your hands. And whatever the, uh, the, the reader makes of it is what it is. Um, my, my genuine hope is that after 15 years of living in a world in which the gray space has been washed out and it's now us and them, it's black and white, that it would get people to at least think a little bit about nuance and the possibility that there exists more than these hard binaries. Um, whether I've achieved that or not, I have no idea, but that's my hope. Omar, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.